Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Close your eyes for a moment and picture what it would be like to walk into a sex therapist's office. What do you think that appointment is going to look like? It turns out that people have a lot of different ideas about this, and some of them are totally, completely, and utterly wrong. For example, they might think that the therapist is going to be having sex with you, or that the therapist is going to watch you having sex and they're going to take notes on it. This could not be further from the truth. But I've heard enough people say things like this that I thought it was time to do an episode in which we demystify sex therapy. In today's show, we're going to talk about what sex therapy is and isn't, who sex therapy is for, how long sex therapy typically lasts, and how well it works. I am joined once again by Dr. Jennifer Vensil, an assistant professor, board-certified clinical health psychologist, and ASEC-certified sex therapist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is duly appointed in the Departments of Psychiatry and Psychology, as well as the Division of General Internal Medicine. Dr. Vensil's first popular press book is titled Desire, an Inclusive Guide to Navigating Libido Differences in Relationships, which she co-authored with Dr. Lauren Vogel-Mercy, who was my guest on the previous episode. This is going to be an eye-opening conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Okay, Jennifer, let's talk about sex therapy. I've interviewed a lot of sex therapists on this show, but we've never really done an in-depth dive into what sex therapy itself is actually like. And I think this is important because a surprising number of people I've encountered have like really wrong ideas about it. You know, (laughs) for example, some of them think that sex therapists are having sex with their clients, which couldn't be further from the truth. So let's start there. What are some common things that people get wrong about sex therapy? Yeah, I really appreciate this question. I do a lot of training with healthcare providers, so physicians in training, physicians assistants, nurses, and I always like to start with the myths about sex therapy, right? Because I'm trying to encourage them to refer to sex therapists. Uh, Sex therapists generally will not touch you in a sex therapy appointment. Uh, During COVID, I would often joke, I won't even shake your hand anymore. Like there's no, there's no touching at all. Um, I sometimes will have patients come in and say, well, I'm not sure, are you going to like rate us on a clipboard, like our sexual performance, and then give us feedback? And like, no, no nudity, no touching, nothing sexual of any kind is going to happen in my office except for communication and conversation, right? There is absolutely a sexual component to sex therapy in the form of, you know, behavioral homework exercises, things you do on your own, potentially with partners. That is always done at home in the privacy of your own place, right, by yourself and or with a partner. Um, So that's never done in the sex therapist's office. 
my office is a place to review, to process those things, to strategize, to come up with next steps, right? So it's going to be talk therapy, but with a very specific focus on sexual health or gender health. Yeah, no one's going to be getting naked. <laughs> There's no sex. You're not watching them have sex. It is not at all like that. No. So let's talk a little bit more about what sex therapy itself actually looks like. So for example, if I made an appointment and showed up in your office tomorrow for a session, what would that first appointment look like? Yeah. My practice is a little bit different. So in my practice, because I'm in an academic healthcare setting, in order to get to me, you first have to see a sexual medicine provider. So I'll talk to my experience and then maybe talk about the general experience with sex therapy. So the way that we do that in my practice is we always want somebody to be seeing a sexual medicine provider, usually a physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA, um, to rule out any potential biomedical, physical factors that might be at play. I work with a lot of folks who have comorbid medical concerns. So menopause, cancer, fibromyalgia, chronic pain conditions, they also have sexual health concerns that go along with those medical health concerns. And so in my practice, everyone sees a sexual medicine physician first, regardless of gender, regardless of anatomy, they'll either see the urologist or our internal medicine specialists that focus on uh, cisgender women's sexual health, or they'll be seen in our gender clinic. So that way I have the knowledge about medically, physically, are there any medications that might be impacting functioning or concerns? What sort of medical illnesses or diagnoses might be affecting concerns? So that really helps me, one, do a more streamlined sexual health history when they get to my office, and two, helps me really think about kind of the biopsychosocial contributors to what's going on, whatever the presenting concern is. By the time they get to my office, right, all of that's been documented, taken care of, so it helps me be more streamlined, like I said. I'm always starting with a really good sexual health history. Typically, if people are coming in wanting to do work together with partners, partner or partners, um, I'll meet with them one-on-one to do a sexual health history with each person. That way I can really get a good thorough understanding of what each person is experiencing by themselves and in relationship to their partner. So that includes lots of questions about kind of all domains of sexual health, everything from certainly libido, desire concerns, fantasy stuff around desire, attractions, to arousal, right? Can you get erections? Can you get lubricated? Any concerns with that? Any difficulties with orgasm or ejaculation? Any difficulties with pain during sex or genital pain? So kind of covering the major domains of sexual health. We're also then, of course, going to do an assessment on relationship health, right? How are you and your partner getting along, right? If you can barely stand to be in the same room with your partner, chances are higher that the sex is maybe going to be compromised and maybe not so fulfilling in that relationship, right? And then, of course, I'm a psychologist by background, and so I'm always doing a bit of a general mental health history as well, right? So has there been trauma in that person's past? Are there any concerns with mood or anxiety, disordered eating, um, any other types of mental health concerns that might come up in terms of body image, difficulty with performance anxiety, right? If your depression is so bad that you're struggling to function day to day, libido is probably not going to be the highest thing on the list, right? So really doing that kind of thorough assessment. Yeah, it sounds like it covers a lot. So it's not as simple as you just come in and say, what's your sexual problem? And then they describe it and then you give them a homework exercise to do. You know, it's not like that. You're collecting a lot of data and information. And I actually love the approach that you have working in an academic center where you've got 
physicians or healthcare providers who are addressing the biomedical factors because we know that they can play a huge role in sexual health and function. And sometimes what a person needs is a medical treatment, a Mm -hmm. drug or surgery or some other type of procedure. And the therapy part isn't essential because there's an equipment issue, right? So, you know, I think you can kind of think of it as equipment issue or software issue. Some of it's a bit of both, but as I've said on the show many times, I'm very much a biopsychosocial theorist. So I love that you have that integration of the different specialties coming together. And I wish that were the standard or the norm for how this stuff worked, but yeah. I do too. What I will say for your listeners for the podcast is if you're going to see a sex therapist who's in a group practice or a private practice, it's not that that biomedical stuff won't be evaluated, but likely you'll be referred to another provider, a physician or a medical provider to do that. And if that's not happening, you should be asking about it, right? Because we do want to make sure that there are not physical things at play. That's something that's pretty common. Like I mentioned before, I see a lot of people who have pain, genital pain, sexual pain, that really needs to be addressed by a medical provider and or pelvic floor physical therapist, right? So there are other healthcare professionals that need to be on your team. Absolutely. Now, I know there's undoubtedly a wide range and it's going to depend on the specific issue, but how long might someone expect to be in sex therapy? Are we talking weeks, months, years? Again, I know there's variation, but what are some kind of typical timeframes? You're right. It's so incredibly variable. So in my practice, I actually see a lot of people for one-time consultations. I may never see them ever again, right? And sometimes we find that that's enough. That's all they need. They need to sit down. They need to talk through some specific solutions, right? Specific limited information that they need to address their concern. That might only take a handful of sessions. It really depends on the presenting concern and what's going on, right? For folks that have maybe more complex medical histories or mental health histories or trauma histories, we might be expecting more longer-term care. It really does depend on kind of what the layers are. In our clinic, we talk about peeling back the onion layers of sexual health, right? So that biopsychosocial model, right? What are the physical factors? What are the psychological factors? What are the relational factors? What are the sociocultural factors? Guilt, shame around sex, sex negativity. Depending on how many of those factors are involved, it can really lengthen the treatment process. So it very much depends. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, what does your client base look like in a sex therapy practice? Now, I know that you being integrated in a academic center, it might skew toward different demographics if you've got people who are coming in for more complex health histories and other factors. But I guess my question here is really, who is sex therapy for? Is it people of all ages, all genders, all sexual orientations? Who is it for? It is. It's for anyone that has sexual health concerns, potentially, depending on what those concerns are. You know, another myth that I often like to address around sex therapy is you have to be in a relationship to go, or it's only for folks with quote unquote really serious problems, whatever that means, right? So thinking about sex therapy as something that is open to all of us as we are all sexual beings in some capacity is really, really important here. You might be single and dating. You might be in a 40-year marriage, right? All of those folks could potentially benefit from sex therapy. And I think this is important to recognize that when it comes to sexual difficulties, they can happen at any point in your life. They're not just something that happens to older individuals. You know, I know when we talk about sex and aging, there's a tendency to focus on the difficulties. And we do know that certain difficulties become more common as we age. 
But people across the lifespan can experience these issues. You know, I interviewed a pelvic floor physical therapist on the show a while back, and she sees people of all ages because pelvic floor issues don't just happen or don't just strike at one particular point in life. So, you know, if it's something that you're struggling with a sexual difficulty, no matter who you are or your background, sex therapy might potentially be a fit for you. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. For most of us, getting good at sex is something we have to learn all on our own. After all, it's not the kind of thing that's covered in traditional sex education. However, developing your sexual skills is something that's really important because not only can it make sex more pleasurable for everyone, but it can also deepen intimacy and help to boost your sexual self-confidence. This is where Beducated can help. Beducated brings pleasure-based sex ed directly into your bedroom. Featuring more than 100 online courses taught by the experts, Beducated is a safe space for everyone to explore their sexuality without judgment, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation, or relationship status. Get started today by signing up for Beducated's free oral sex video training. A lot of people approach oral sex the same exact way every time, but there are actually countless ways to do it. If you've never tried it another way, you might very well be missing out. This course will teach you what you need to know to become an oral sex virtuoso. You'll learn how to become a skilled and confident oral lover, as well as how to deepen communication, connection, and intimacy with a partner. You'll also learn how to feel safe, how to love yourself, and how to surrender to pleasure. The video content is inclusive, it provides actionable tips, and it's something you can explore on your own or together with a partner. Make oral sex your superpower with Beducated. Check the show notes for the link to sign up for Beducated's free online training to take your oral skills to the next level. Enjoy. Now, you mentioned people in relationships sometimes going to see a sex therapist. And you said, you know, you'll often see them individually at first to figure out what's going on. But tell us a little bit more about what couples sex therapy looks like. Is it better to see each other individually for a while before bringing them in together? I mean, how does that work? What does it look like? Kind of depends on what's happening, right? When I'm meeting with partners where there are some just general relationship health things that we need to address, sometimes we have to do that work together first before we can even really start talking about the sexual intimacy side of things, right? So an example of this is if you have literally never had a sexual conversation or a conversation about sex with your partner, we need to do some, you know, sessions all together, all three of us or however many partners to really be making sure that we can just start to open the door of that communication, right? Right. And then we can kind of move from there, whether that be ongoing couples work or relationship work or individual work, right? If you don't know how to disagree in a healthy way with your partners, right? If we're having a lot of fighting, a lot of animosity, a lot of resentment, we might need to start with general relationship health stuff, right? Communication skills building, some of that general like marriage and relationship therapy, couples therapy kind of work before we move into how do we navigate desire differences, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and as you were talking about that, it had me thinking back to the first question I asked you about misconceptions people have about sex therapy. And, you know, I think there are some couples where one of the partners might be reluctant to go to see mm-hmm. a sex therapist with their partner because they think the therapist is going to take their partner's side. And so how do you as a therapist be the impartial third party that's not taking someone's side that's you know, allowing everybody to be heard in that conversation. 
Yeah, something I, I often will say to partners in my office is you both bring strengths and you both bring baggage, right? Like everyone has their <laughs> stuff that they bring. And I, I don't say that to be disparaging, but we all bring our stuff. We bring our, our barriers. We bring, you know, the things that make it hard to navigate sexual health concerns, whether that's trauma, whether that's just bad sex education or lack of sex education, whether that's not knowing how to talk about these topics openly, right? We all bring our independent challenges to the relationship and we all bring our strengths to the relationship. So I really see myself as here for all parties involved, right? I want everyone to be having optimal sexual experiences. So I'm not here to take one person's side or the other, though that may need to happen in a given kind of situation, right? Where I might need to say, okay, I think you need to listen to your partner here, right? So there might be some times where there's some back and forth in that way. But the overarching goal for me as the therapy provider here is to optimize health for all parties in the relationship. Yeah. And not to just say one person is wrong about everything and needs to change <laughs> yeah. and the other person is always right, because that would not be a very helpful therapeutic dynamic. No. And we know that's not how relationships work. Yeah. <laughs> so how effective is sex therapy? You know, what do we know about how successful it is at treating and resolving sexual and relationship difficulties? And again, I know this is another answer where it depends to some extent on what the problem is. Some problems are harder to treat than others. But overall, how effective is sex therapy? Yeah, for me as a researcher, I think there's some frustration here, right? Because it's not like we have big like outcome trials where we're gathering data about treatment effectiveness the way we see with kind of more streamlined like CBT for depression or anxiety. They're not big clinical trials on sex therapy and sexual functioning outcomes. I wish we could do that. We unfortunately do not live in a culture that is funding a lot of work or prioritizing a lot of this work. So admittedly, the data are missing, right? There's a lot of information that we don't know. I will say anecdotally, right, kind of speaking from my therapy hat, my therapy side of things, this can be enormously effective and it depends on what the goals are, right? So are the goals around functioning, right? Like less pain with sex or improving orgasms or ejaculation or feeling more attuned to your partner? Are the goals to reduce a sense of shame or guilt around sexual activity? Are the goals to really challenge yourself to uh, feel more sexual as an individual or more sexual within your relationship? And so, one thing that's so interesting about sexual health and sex therapy is it's this very niche area of therapy practice, but it's incredibly broad. The things that people want to come in and work on are incredibly broad. And so it really kind of depends on that too. Yeah. And in addition to the lack of funding to study this stuff, Another issue that arises, and I talk about this in my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality, I have a chapter on sex therapy. When you define success in sex therapy, you know, what does that mean? It's kind of this nebulous term because a successful outcome for one individual dealing with a certain sexual difficulty might not feel like success to another person. So for example, let's say you have a patient who comes in with uh, premature or early ejaculation and they regularly reach orgasm within less than a minute every time they engage in sexual activity with their partner. Now let's say after therapy for several months and trying self-help techniques and other things, they can now last an extra minute. So they're lasting two minutes instead of one minute. For some people, that might be considered a very desirable outcome. For other people, it might not be enough of a change to be meaningful for them. So that also makes it hard to study is how do you put objective indicators for what a successful outcome is in sex therapy? It's just, it's kind of a challenging thing to study in and of itself. 
It is. I mean, we get back to humans are complex and human sexuality is incredibly complex and diverse. And so something that I know frustrates researchers like you and I is how do we categorize? How do we place boxes around these things that often don't need boxes and shouldn't have boxes, right? So it's very challenging to do this work in a research context. Yeah. And that's why you often have to focus more on just sort of overall patient satisfaction as opposed to putting these objective indicators down because sexual dysfunction, sexual difficulty is itself subjective. You know, it's based on whether the individual experiences distress around that and whether or not that distress is resolved through sex therapy. So it's a much more subjective thing. And so that makes it complicated to study because you can't put down the objective markers that you might like to do for a lot of these issues. One of the ways that I've tried to make this a bit more objective and measurable in my practice is by actually giving, there is a sexual distress scale where it is sort of this numerical, more objective kind of measure of distress around sexual health concerns. And so we can track progress on that scale over time and we want to see the distress coming down, of course. Yeah. That's reminding me of when I was in physical therapy last year for a back injury and, you know, initially came in and had to fill out, you know, these quantitative (laughs) scales of, you know, how much pain I was in and how much I could do basic activities, pain, you know, and then over time, you know, looking at what was my outcome Mm -hmm. versus where I went initially. So yeah, having those quantitative indicators, but still tapping into the subjective component for the individual can be a way of addressing that. Now, I have one more question for you, which is whether sex therapy is something that is usually covered by insurance or not. And if somebody doesn't have insurance coverage, are there other ways to access sex therapy? Yeah. So to your first question, if we're speaking here in the United States and our very complicated uh, healthcare system, it in many ways depends on how the sessions are being coded for billable hours and for insurance plans. I am aware of certain plans here in Minnesota where I work where there's blanket lack of coverage, sort of exclusion of coverage of any sexual dysfunction diagnoses that occur in the DSM, right? However, if you are treating it as a health and behavior code, which is how I tend to bill my sessions, where it's kind of treated under the medical diagnosis. So for example, if somebody has cancer and I'm seeing them for sexual health concerns related to cancer treatment, it actually gets billed under the cancer code because it is directly related to the medical diagnosis. And so that's been a way to help people access care in a bit more accessible fashion, right? But it really depends on how it's being coded. For some people, it's actually being coded as anxiety or relationship concerns. And so how things are being diagnosed and coded really makes the difference here. Yeah. And also for somebody who might not have any insurance coverage at all, another thing they might do is you can still reach out to a sex therapist because some of them work on sliding scales where if you don't have insurance coverage, then they will charge you a lower rate so that you can still access therapy, right? Yes, absolutely that. And I would say, you know, there's a lot of garbage sexual self-help in the world, as you're very aware. Like, there's a lot that's been written and published that is patently false. It's misinformation and it's wrong. That being said, there are also some really, really wonderful sexual self-help books that exist in the world. And so I know that you have a kind of a bookshelf, a book list that you keep running, right? And so making sure that if we don't have accessibility to work with a healthcare professional or a therapist, not everybody has that. There are less than 1,100 certified sex therapists in the United States, so not everybody can access us. But to be seeking out information and sex education that is accurate and evidence-based from people that actually know what they're talking about, 
that can go a long way for helping a lot of people. Not everyone needs sex therapy, right? Sometimes we just need education. Absolutely. And so well said. (laughs) So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jennifer. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Jennifer Wenzel. I would love to see folks. Thank you for having me on. Yes. And the new book is called Desire. Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating desire differences in relationships. And I will be sure to include a link to that in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Thank you.